Welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast with your hosts, me, Megan Powell, and Peg Queen. Our guest on today's episode is Ty Landrum, whom we've actually had the honor of having on once before. I wanted to begin by reading a short description from Ty for his year-long immersion into yogic practice and philosophy called Into the Depths. Designed for spiritual expats and philosophical refugees, somatic explorers, soul hunters, stargazers, rule breakers, and other mystical miscreants who have had enough of the ruses of religion and want to set down dogma and the burden of belief to follow the true path of reflection on what is. If you're thinking to yourself, that's me, that's what I'm looking for. Just know you're not alone because it's what drew me into signing up for its first round in 2021 and what you'll hear Peg refer to in the beginning of the podcast. If you already know Ty, this will come as no shock. But one thing I realized was that those words were not just describing me or you, but Ty himself. For he embodies the spirit of yoga without sharp distinctions or confining dogma. His love for the practice is boundless. And I cannot think of another who breaks the mold of conventional shanga quite like Ty does. So without further ado, fellow mystical miscreants, here's Ty Landrum and Peg Queen. Before we start, I do want to say that Megan texted me and said, tell him I said hi, and then in all caps, and don't forget to hit record. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she and I had amazing conversations about her course with you, because of course she took that year long the first year you offered the intensive, she yeah. participated. Yeah. Consequently, I feel like I participated. We would have the liveliest conversations about whatever topic was up for grabs that month um, in your intensive. And one I remember in particular that was really fun to discuss. See if see if I say this word. Something about hope. Uh-huh. It was it it was the downside of hope, right? It was Well, we talked about hopelessness as a <laughs> as an essential step to, you know, a certain kind of surrender. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting topic. Um at that time it was the first year of the pandemic. So it was just... <laughs> <laughs> bad timing, huh? <laughs> Or good, you know, or good. Talk to me a little bit about that. We had our own thought. You know, we, of course, it really did spark some lively conversations, that one in particular. It was so contrary to anything we wanted to feel, especially in that moment, but also our general human nature. You know, hope is sometimes what keeps us going. And I would love to, that's what I thought would be love to start off with you with, because it was such an interesting topic. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult one, I think, to get, to get access to. I mean, the, the, the basic idea is just that, uh, that, that hope is uh, a kind of attachment of a sort, you know, to things working out in a certain kind of way. Right. And, and of course the, the point here is not that hope is bad or something like that right it's not that it's not that you know that we need to eradicate all hope from our lives but it's it's more about having hopes around spiritual progress and the idea is that as long as we are projecting certain ideas about where we're going spiritually speaking as long as we see ourselves as being on some kind of trajectory and we have certain ideas about how that trajectory is supposed to unfold, those very ideas uh, at a certain point 
those ideas will prevent us from going any farther because they will interfere with a natural process of unraveling that can't that the that the that the that the ego can't have an overview of you know like like that we can't our individual selves can't have a clear conception of what our unraveling is going to look like one way to sort of get your teeth into that point is just to notice that probably your experience over time of coming to appreciate the truth of certain familiar insights is radically unlike what you thought it was going to be like, (laughs) you know, or just to put it a different way that your experience, that, that what it would be like, what it would feel like to practice yoga for 10 years and what you would understand about life and what you wouldn't still wouldn't understand is probably radically different than what you thought it would be 10 years before. Right. I mean, it's just like that, isn't it? You know, and, and it's wonderfully so wonderfully like that because it's not as if it's not as if it's a big disappointment. It's rather just that our projections about where we're going never real pretty much never turn out to be so. And the truth turns out to be far richer and more interesting than we thought. <laughs> that is Beautifully put. And I think in retrospect, as I'm looking back, we we thought it was very funny and ironic that you brought up hopelessness in the midst of a pandemic, uh, in the midst of lockdowns. But then as we started to explore further, it was interesting because at that point was the letting go time, was the are we going back to the way things were, the status quo. And, and, And that's what we wanted to hold on to as a community, as people, as whatever. And, but that letting go process was, I think, what opened at least Megan and me up to something really different, a different kind of work, a different kind of approach. We practiced differently. And you're right. It wasn't predictable. We had to stop hoping to go back to where we were or hoping you know, go to where we thought we should be or where we were going. So it became more and more meaningful to us or had more and more relevance even as we went on. Yeah, perfect. I mean, that's it. That's the point. Yeah. It makes me happy. Yeah. To hear that it, that it served. Well, you, yeah. You have a lovely way of bringing other aspects of the practice into practice And that was, I know, what drew her to the course that you have, you do a lot of storytelling, but but you also brought in other ways of practicing, even other ways of approaching the Ashtanga yoga practice. Your whole style is very different, I think, than what we're used to conventionally. I mean, you know... (laughs) I'm the, I'm probably the, 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 the worst person to ask, you know what I mean? I just, (laughs) because of course, I mean, because to me, it's, I just, I, I mean, what I explore, what, what I'm passionate about, um, you know, is yoga as it's been taught to me and as I understand it. And then when I hear that, you know, that it sounds so sort of different or left field or unique, um, yeah, I don't know. It makes my face scrunch up a little bit. I'm kind of like, really? <laughs> huh. <laughs> well, let's bring it up just to movement, just to um, watch the way you move and, and the way you teach the movement. Okay, I'll give you an example. My friend, I have a friend who comes over and we do some self-practice in the mornings together. And, and as part of Ohm Stars, you have a lead primary. So I said, yeah, so I said to her, I think it's a lot primary. Yeah. So I said, hey, do you want to do Ty's class? This is who this is who is uh Megan's taking the year along with. And my friend said, Oh yeah, let's do it. And we both were like, oh, it was so 
beautiful, the elements of nature that you brought in, the way you described the movements were, were so poetic. Where do you think that comes from? Like, where, where do you draw from? I mean, where do I draw from? I draw from, I draw from, from most, I mean, mostly from experience, you know, from practice and from, and from stud, you know, from reading, um, and from, of course, from all the teachers that I've studied with, all the great teachers that I've studied with. Um, but you know, I think, I think it's just, I, I, I mean, I'll tell you when I was when I was studying philosophy, there was this particular year where there was I experienced a real shift in the way that I was working, and. And during that shift, and and I became and I became, I went from sort of just, you know, just kind of toiling away and nothing really happening to suddenly, you know, starting to publish in good journals and getting different recognitions and so on and so forth. And, and my my advisor said, What happened? <laughs> you know, what what is this shift? Because you the way that, you know, this is there's a real, you know, there's a real sort of shift in your work. And it was something that yoga did for me. And I remember telling him, because it helped me when he asked that, and then I articulated it and it gave me more conscious, con consciousness around it. And I said, you know, I stopped doing what I was trained to do, which is this kind of weak conceptual analysis thing, which is just dreadful, you know? And I just started paying attention to the phenomenon and describing it as I experience it as honestly and, and as directly as I can, and that changed everything. And so it's, I think with the yoga, I, I, I kind of always approached it that way because my basic understanding of the thing is that it's, it's, it's supposed to be the most immediate, up-close, intimate kind of encounter, you know, that, that is, uh, that's possible. And so to understand that in your own... In, you know, I sometimes would tell my students when we're talking in, into the depths that they need to articulate these things for themselves. Don't take my formulations. Don't write them down in your notebook. You know, just it's just one person trying to make sense of something. And then now you do that. And what's important for you, I tell my students, is that you, however you describe these things, you describe them in the voice that you, in which you speak to yourself. You know, it has to be your unique idiom. It can't be you read it in a book and somebody said it's like this. And so then you say it like that. It has to be, well, what's your voice? Because, because it's only when you understand things in that voice that it starts to come alive for you in the way that's most deeply engaging to your own soul. You know, it has to be in that language. And then if it is, then every, when, as you're thinking and reflecting and and you know, engaging yourself, it's gonna, it's gonna have more, it's gonna have more bite, you know, it's gonna make up, it's gonna move things more uh, internally, if you're engaging that way. So that's what I try to do, you know, and some people appreciate it, some people really don't. And, you know, it's all okay. It's just, you know, but, um, you know, I, I just, I follow my passion, you know, I try, you know, I have the, all the same voices that we all have of that try to, you know, knock you off that horse and derail you from following your passions and tell you, oh, you have to do it the way people tell you to do it and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, that's a really important experience to pick apart, to reflect on and to, you know, um, and to unravel ultimately, you know, that desire to do things by the book, because what is that? You know, what is that desire to do things by the book? And I know the ego says, well, it's, you know, you have to do things according to the, you know, the traditional wisdom and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, okay. You know. <laughs> but really what's in your heart? You know, why are you, why do we feel like, or did, you know, when we have felt this way, and I know, I mean, you and I have had some exchange about this, that, that we, you know, have this feeling. I still have it. Sometimes it still haunts me, you know, that, oh, you're supposed to do it like this, you know? 
And then there's a part of you that like, oh, okay. You know, you go, well, what is that, right? <laughs> what is this? It's a little, you know, schoolboy obedient kind of spirit, right? That wants to just sort of align itself. Like, oh, I want, I need to align myself with the paternalistic tradition. You know, why? Well, because we want to belong. We want validation. We want security. We want reassurance that we're doing things right. You know, we want to believe that if we go through these steps, A and B and C, in the end, it's all going to be okay. That one day we'll wake up and be better versions of ourselves, you know, if we just follow the, you know, and that's all fine. Those are all, you know, those are all sort of longings of the heart that need to be handled gently. Um, but I think ultimately intelligence on a little reflection shows that sort of, you know, following tradition in that way can only take you so far. And once you've come that far, it becomes a huge obstacle. Like, you know, that you'll just stagnate there. You'll become withered and dry and brittle if you stay there doing that to yourself. There's a certain point where you have to kind of, yeah, go through that. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I was thinking in the beginning, that's, that is how we learn, obviously. I mean, you need basics and you need to have, and mimicry is kind of part of the learning process too, even Absolutely. in children. You know, you Absolutely. take on different voices, you see what resonates, but you're right, at some point, you have to, there's that letting go thing again and open yourself up to. Right. And it's the point at which your intelligence starts to blossom. And, you know, the yoga is supposed to awaken that intelligence, you know, it's supposed to awaken the intelligence of the body. And when you, when it, when you, when that starts to move and you feel that very viscerally and you start to develop a trust in it so that it starts to inform, um, you, you know, it starts to inform the biggest decisions of your life. Then of course, it also informs the way that you move when you, you know, the way that you allow the breath to move through the body the way that you move on your mat, the way that you sequence your practices, the way that you arrange your practices, the way that you, you know, reflect on them and explore them, etc. So but this idea of sort of like teaching receptivity to the intelligence of the of the body is essential to you know real yoga teaching and real yoga exploration. I mean, it's, and it's ultimately something we teach to ourselves and that we, and then, and that we help others, you know, that we, we can help each other find that and help each other, support each other in exploring that intelligence. But it, I, I think it necessarily involves some moment of breaking somewhat radically from the script. It's so interesting because even in the way movement occurs, like we all move differently. We have different bodies. We naturally will move differently. But a little bit of when we're learning Ashtanga yoga in particular, because it is so structured that we it suppresses a lot of those flourishes, which may or may not be good for us. You know, you don't know. But then I find myself going back to things the way I used to move before I got an idea that, no, it, it's like this. And some of those things were helpful, right? In getting rid of habits or patterns in my body that maybe weren't as healthy, but discerning, you know, not, there was a little while there where I could see in, in, even in my own practice where it became very stiff and very like mechanical, do you know? Like I was executing something instead of actually embodying it's because it is it in, indeed in the beginning it's a performance it has to be there's nothing else for it to be you're you're someone showing you you're going to do these movements you perform those movements you're doing it from memory you're trying to work it out you're trying to and you know the 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 precision of ashtanga which is, you know, that uh, the, the sort of precision of that Tristana method where, you know, each, each breath and each movement and each gazing point is sequenced. The brilliance of that is that 
it hones your attention in a way that you just simply wouldn't otherwise hone it. You know, it, it, it gets you to focus on what you're doing um, wonderfully, brilliantly, you know. But once you have that, and it takes some years to develop that kind of focus where you can really do, you know, a whole, a whole asana practice and never lose your attention on your breath. You know, that takes, that's a, that's a cultivated ability for most. Um, but once you have that, it, um, it can, you know, it can then become really rather, rather stifling. Yeah. Like you're saying, and, and, and then at that point, you know, once you have, because once you have that attention, then you also have the kind of attention to your body where you kind of, you can feel when your body, when you kind of want to check out, you know, when thought just wants to sort of distract you away from what you're doing, but that's a very different kind of experience from feeling some kind of energetic movement, something in the body that wants to kind of roll through a certain way. And then you start to have the experience eventually of like blocking that, like suppressing it somehow, you know, like, uh, no, I'm going to, you know, I keep my head like this and I keep my hips square forward or whatever it is, you know, whatever. And, and, and then you, it starts to feel very much like an energetic obstruction unless you kind of let that go and let the body move spontaneously in the way that it wants to move, you know, and of course, you know, at that point, intelligence just simply demands that you allow that to happen. That, that is that you move with it spontaneously, you know, rather than, rather than sticking to the, to the, to the performance. But, you know, that is in, in conventional Ashtanga, um, that, um, that's not, that's not uh, discussed, you know, because, uh, and I think part, maybe part, part of the reason is because Ashtanga has become huge. It's become mainstream, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure you remember that when you started and for sure, when I started, it was, it was edgy. It was marginal. You know, it was, it was not the mainstream yoga and now it's become, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's mainstream by any estimation. And so, and, and so a lot of the information that circulates is it kind of stays at a kind of lower grade. Um, you know, it's more about where do you put your gaze? Where do you put your hand? Whether you lift your head or like that, or how the, you hold your fingers or whatever. And, you know, those things are, you know, useful on, on a certain level, but it's a, it's a fairly, it's a fairly low, low level. Yeah. I think it would be, you know, it, it, it's, it's, um, we just need more space, you know, in the, in the Ashtanga community as a whole for, that, you know, that for a kind of, <laughs> for further development, you know. Um. You used a word that I appreciate that I've begun to use in place of traditional. Uh, you said conventional. Yeah. Because the two are very different. When we say, we start to say, well, this is the way traditionally Ashtanga yoga or any yoga, but that's not really true. That's not the word conventional. Wait, you did that, I'm sure, consciously. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, look, the tradition's not terribly old. You know, that I mean, you know, my grandparents have older traditions that, you know, were started in their lifetime. So, I mean, <laughs> The, the vinyasa krama method upon which ashtanga is based is well it's hard to know how old it is but it seems like by most sort of reasonable reasonable scholarly estimations it's several hundred years old and um you know and but its age has little to do with its potency it's not as if you know that the tradition makes it more potent in time it the, the vinyasa krama method is extremely potent. The ashtanga sequencing itself, you know, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's terribly old. I mean, you know, 50, 60 years, maybe something like that. Um, and it's wonderful sequencing. It's brilliant. And, you know, it supposedly is based on the yoga karunta, certain text, what the relationship is between what was in that text 
and you know primary and second series as we know it i don't know i don't think anybody knows you know like like just how how similar um the the, the 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 practices given in the yoga karunta are to primary and second i mean nobody knows um but um yeah the convention is is um you know it's mo um, it's mostly i mean convention pretty much means what what you know surat dictates people are doing in mysore presently you know and that's an important thing it's an interesting thing to know um and um but <laughs> to work more fundamentally with you know with vinyasa krama that, that can you know that can take you far outside the convention right to really explore the essence of this method of moving with the breath you know and of of breathing deeply with ujjayi breath and then allowing the body to express different you know postural forms uh at, you know as expressions of the breath and to move in and out rhythmically in that way and then to to have you know an intelligent sort of um sequence of forms within that you know along that thread um yeah that could take you quite far outside of conventional ashtanga and may indeed you know take you deeper into the potency of the method upon which ashtanga is based mm -hmm. Well, I like this switch of the words because a lot of times you feel like when we start to say traditionally, traditionally, no, traditions are beautiful things. They join us with our ancestry, heritage. They give us um, a connection to each other. And so there's this feeling when we use the word traditional to describe the sequencing or the way it's being taught right now, there's this idea that if I do have primary and half intermediate I've broken with tradition or if I just do any series I have broken with tradition I am out and that's not true because part of what you're saying what I hear you saying what I feel is that in finding your own way in 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 using your own body's intelligence you are going to go outside convention because it's not going, you are, that's the idea, but that is the tradition too. You're not losing tradition. You're actually, what I hear you just say is digging deeper into it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I mean, if we, you know, I, we're, we're, we are, we are heirs to these traditions, right? And if, if we're to like truly honor the wisdom that these traditions are passing down to us, then we don't just, you know, sort of blindly follow the conventional script in which that intelligence is passed, but we embody the intelligence, allow it to come alive through us and then re-express it. And it's going to appear differently because that's how, you know, that's how life moves. It's how all traditions flourish, you know, and that, and how they develop, they develop, you know, but because the intelligence that's within the tradition keeps breaking through the conventional forms in which it's expressed to make space for new forms to appear. Um, you know, and that's what it is for these things to really flourish. And Ashtanga is so potent. Um, I think that, you know, it, there, that, that there, there, you know, that, that we do see and will continue to see a kind of, you know, fl a flourishing of new forms out of that soil. Hmm. <laughs> I love that you keep coming back to the Ashtanga method, to having a method and the way you're able to hold the paradox within the same container. And you had a recent post that kind of drew attention to this. And it was talking about uh, the, the, the challenge of challenging our bodies and being able to work with our body. And I, you said it, of course, much better and, you're, and you can repeat it. But what I got out of it is there's been this whole flip-flop now. There's almost a judgment if there you work with your body in a way that now convention says is too extreme. What prompted that? A conversation with, with a student, you know, someone who had reached out to me and, and, and said, 
you know, I'm, I'm worried that, you know, like I push too hard and there's this, and I really want to, you know, a himsa and all that. And it's, you know, it's, and it, it's, it's, I mean, the ideas that, you know, we're always, we're always like taking these different yogic ideas and then forming images of what we're supposed to be like if we're going to be good yogis. You know, it's the most natural thing to do. It's, it's a tender thing to do. It's fine. You know, it's not, I'm not saying don't do this, right? Like your mind's going to do that because that's what, you know, that's what minds do. Like, how am I doing? What am I becoming? Right. And then you, and then the mind forms some idea like, well, if I do, you know, if I do it like this, then I'm going to be a better version of myself, you know, but th this is the ideal that I subscribe to. So I need to try and embody that. And then you're always like measuring yourself against that ideal. But yoga is, is, you know, inviting us to, right. To, to, to gain more consciousness around that, to like, to see very, to see very clearly, to see ourselves doing that. And then to understand, you know, what the motive is, and then also to see the, the kind of hubris in it, or the, um, you know, to see the, and also to, to see the, to see the damage that we do to ourselves in, in doing that. Because insofar as I project an image and I keep trying to measure myself up to that image, then I'm not being fully present with what I actually am. I'm not just allowing what is here to sort of stand forth, you know? And so if in my practice, if I'm always holding myself to a certain ideal and then judging myself for, you know, variously, you know, failing or succeeding to embody that image in different ways, I'm just, I'm creating inner dissonance. I'm like, my consciousness is divided against myself. There's the part of me that's sort of starting to cohere with the image. And then there's the bad part of me that's not cohering. And I'm constantly like warring, you know, against myself. I, that polarity that you see is, you know, an extrusion of something that's internal, which is that we, there's all this psychical dissonance that we have. We're always constantly judging ourselves. And is this the right way? Is that the right way? You know, and, um, and that's an internal that's a kind of internal process um, that just gets, you know, that then we, we start to project outward and then to kind of argue, uh, you know, in the ways that we do about what's the right method and what's the right way to practice and how's it supposed to feel. And then, so the post was just about giving ourselves space to just like, let it be messy for God's sakes, you know, let it be, or like, you know, you don't have to, like, you're not a logical construct, you're a person. So like contradiction, it's okay. Like expect it, you know what I mean? Like there, there are many different aspects, uh, you know, that are of yourself that are going to appear, you know, in a, in, a, in a practice where you really hold space for yourself. And the idea isn't to decide which of them to throw your weight behind, you know, the idea is to just give them all space, to allow them to all have a voice, allow them to all sort of, you know, have a place at the table, so to speak. I remember when I was going, when I went through menopause, I really needed to rest. And I was still holding on to having a very intense practice. And this practice was not serving me at the time. In fact, it was depleting me. And really, really needed that slowing down. And that was a, a, a grieving process for me too, because very much of the intensity defined who I was. So actually letting go of that, or, you know, that it was grieving that. And then what was unhelpful were the people that would say, well, you know, you get to a certain age and you have to give, you give postures back. And it was such a transactional, icky way to, and I was like, I just want to say fuck off, man. Like that is not what I need to hear. Like, yes, I can trust, <laughs> but like, don't tell me I and so there was a, a very it was a very difficult process for me. But once I was able to kind of surrender to it, it was a, a very opening moment for me. It was a very receptive. That so to say that you know, menopause passes. I'm now 56. Things, you know, things shift in the body and energy started to return. 
And I found myself not wanting to regain the intensity I had, but to explore my body's possibilities, capabilities in different ways. And you know what bummed me out, Ty, mm. is that I couldn't do it within my yoga practice because the extreme movements of the series and the, the postures that came within it. I loved my yoga practice. Yeah. I found it as a, a refuge, a solace, a beautiful place to ground and connect yeah. with my breath, but I couldn't, I needed, all right, this is, this is a little strange to say, but I needed a little danger, a little intensity, a little, a little pushing. I needed like, I needed to wake up a little. I was getting a little, um, pathetic, lethargic. My energy was too down. And so I took up and it was, it was hard because it was when I was going through it. And remember, like now it's like ahimsa. That's like the yogi's word for answer to all problems, right? Ahimsa, like that's supposed to tell you. And I was practicing ahimsa, but there comes a time when I actually also needed the other side too. I needed it to needed it to hurt a little, not uh -huh. bad, not my, and so I started running, running brought that pumping of the blood that I want to say almost painful aspect that brought me into my body that allowed me to explore limits in the way that I wasn't able to return to in my yoga practice and don't really want to either. Like I, but I needed something. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, running is a totally natural human <laughs> function, activity, right? Um, yeah, so sure. That's fantastic. And thanks for sharing that. I love that sort of story of like becoming more receptive to the body's to the body's needs, you know, to the to, to the and to the natural cycles of the body, the natural movement of the body over the arc of a of a lifetime, you know. Um, because of course we do not to, not just in in popular culture. Of course we celebrate youthfulness. We celebrate vigor and athleticism. And Ashtanga is amazing. You know, you see people doing that. Like, wow, where did you learn that? It's you know, it's wonderful. It's gorgeous in that way, and and can really like connect you to that vitality. And then there's a certain you know you go through various phases. Um, we all do where. God, you just don't, you can't find it, you know, to do after, after so many years, you know, and you wake up and do that same series again with the same kind of, you know, vigor and enthusiasm. And, you know, the body at a certain point start for various, you know, various reasons. Well, like it's not there, it's resisting even. You know, I think the body, I mean, I see so many people go through that and I've had these moments myself where the body's just like, no, like do something else. <laughs> right? <laughs> and that is what it was. It was taking it outside, but it was also, um, there's this idea that you hit a certain age or you come to a certain place and you have somehow transcended the need to be in your body. That now <laughs> I am an enlightened, I'm a more, I'm a wiser woman now. And so I know that all of that, all of that, you know, jumping around on your mat is not really uh -huh. yoga. Uh -huh. but, uh -huh. but I actually needed some jumping around and being in my body. But there is this idea that you're supposed to hit a certain point and those that are truly enlightened no longer make those, those shapes are no longer as a word, I'm, I'm really making this very polarized and extreme in my saying, but there is a, a message and there is, um, I feel it. I, I see it. Uh -huh. Do you? Um, I think I, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard that voice for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I mean, it, to me, it just seems like for, you know, for as long as you're embodied, you know, the, the, the body, it's, I mean, the body will tell us, right. The body may, be, and who, who are we to say until we experience it for ourselves. Right. But I mean, for me, it, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years younger than you. So I'm, how old am I? 47. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it, so 
I can't speak so well, you know, yet to, uh, you know, to like, <laughs> what will it, what will it be like to, you know, to move towards 60 with asana practice? I don't know. Um, I don't really have any, any projections about it. I will say this. I'm an, I'm just, I'm crazy about asana. I'm a, I'm mad about it. I love it so much. To me, it feels incredible. It feels so good. And one of the things I love about it, like I really don't do anything else physically. I just, I haven't, I'm not saying I never will. I just, since I started asana, it's been like, it's been it for me, but it's, I, it's had so many different phases and, you know, I've had very long stretches of time where I've d done the conventional scripted Ashtanga program, you know, for years and years and years on end, all the way up until the point where I started going, is what it, it's the intention really that someone's going to do this for multiple <laughs> decades, like just like this. Cause I, you know, like, it, like at a certain point, the body's like kind of going like, really, like, you know, is this really so good for you? And, um, and it's not the intensity of it. it. That's not it. It's not the intensity. It's not the depth of it. It's rather just like my body started to say, you know, there are many other ways to move like within this same, within this whole vinyasa krama framework, right? Like there are so many yoga postures right? Uncountably many yoga postures, like, you know, and, you know, and I've always been a, a bit of an explorer. I mean, I did the conventional Ashtanga thing, but I would, you know, I mean, since the beginning, I mean, I've always been a little bit kind of, you know, I've a little, I mean, I was kind of raised on the punk rock ethos and like, I can't shake it, you know? So like, Really, I never got that from you at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, breaking the rule, you know, I, like I really, <laughs> I'm just drawn to break the rules. I don't know. But at the same time, I am someone who just like, I steeped myself in that Ashtanga thing because I wanted to find out, you know, what is it like if you do it exactly by the book for 10 years without breaking, you know, what does that feel like? And like, I went for it. I gave it 15 and, you know, and then um i i and and during and even during that i would kind of i would do my conventional ashtanga practice and then like right at the end before backbending i would always explore you know like play around see what else you know if i was working on other postures or whatever but i've mean i've never really gotten into you know since i've been mad about ashtanga and it's been about 17 years um i've never like branched out into other movement modalities as some of my colleagues have. I think it's wonderful. I think it's awesome. I think it's super impressive, but there's just something about this whole, you know, about the Ashtanga or the Vinyasa Krama method, the way that it teaches, it, it gets this internal energy moving. And then you start to express that outwardly and it, it gets like a certain momentum and it starts to move you from the inside out. Like, I just love that. I'm just crazy about it. And I'm crazy about what it does for the mind. I'm crazy about the way that, you know, it, it has helped me evolve personally. So like what's, what I'm really passionate about is exploring that. And that has in the, especially in the last several years, you know, especially since the pandemic suddenly put a stop on things and you have, you know, had to, as a, uh, my friend, uh, Diana from super soul yoga, I remember she did a, uh, she wrote on, I think it was on, I can't remember if she wrote any of this in an email or an Instagram, but she said it so, so well. It's as if mother nature uh, suddenly made us, us all stop and go sit in the corner and think about what we've done. <laughs> yeah. So when I was, you know, so during that, that year of lockdown, when I was sort of sitting in the corner, you know, and, and really like reflecting a lot just on, on how I practice and how I move. And I started, you know, moving very differently. And now, you know, my practice is, I mean, to, for me personally, my, what I say is it's, it, it is what has naturally evolved out of a very deep focused long long-term Ashtanga practice. And this is what I have. There are people would say, who would say, you're not doing Ashtanga anymore at all. Mm, whatever. You know, I don't, it doesn't matter to me, but 
I practice with the kind of intensity, the kind of fluidity, the kind, that kind of the same like breath-based, you know, um, technique that I learned in Ashtanga. Um, but my, my body is, 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 is inviting me, asking me, leading me into very different sequences that I'm exploring with great excitement. I just love it. So I love your enthusiasm for all things, practice, movement, shape making, whatever you want to call it. And and I think, I think that is the idea. Your, your progress, your journey is different and going to be different, whether you incorporate other movement modalities or you do it that way. You're doing what fits you and you can tell that it fits you because of how much joy you exude, even when you're talking about it. <laughs> there's this there's this joy that you manifest in your face and in the way you are just in your body at the moment. And that, I don't know if you can teach that but I know that you can take that away as teachers I don't know if you can instill it I do think you can stifle it and yes yes yeah you can you can absolutely stifle it you can you can stifle it so 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 easily and you know people will stifle that in themselves because we sort of you know we we are we are raised on the idea with our conventional education that we need to go out and make something of ourselves, you know, like that we're not worthy until we achieve. We're not worthy until we're successful. And so then we have to, and then what is success? Well, you have to find some sort of external measure and then show that you measure up. That's what it is. And so then we do that with spirituality and with yoga and we go, oh, I really want to get into this. Well, what's the good method? And you see Ashton go, oh, that's super intense. That's got to work, you know, (laughs) So I want to learn how, like, show me the real deal. You know, I want the authentic, you know, the, and so then we go and, you know, and we, and, and, and Ashtanga really serves because it's so precise and there's so much to learn and it's, and it's impossible. So, you know, you're going to expend, you can expend, you know, a lifetime of energy trying to perfect it and you won't. So it's kind of a perfect storm, you know? But so, but we, so my point is that we will do that to ourselves, you know, under this idea that somehow we need to measure up. But as long as we are trying to make ourselves measure up to something, we are precisely not sustained. We are, we are not in the kind of intimate relationship with our own vital energy that Hatha Yoga is all about. My understanding is that Hatha Yoga is all about developing a relationship of deep, profound intimacy to the creative forces that shape us from within. You know, the, the creative forces that make us what we are include and, and that we experience that most vividly, most sort of close up as our breath, like the energy that's continuously unfolding in and as our breath, in and as these breathing bodies to you know, have a very close uh, 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 contemplative relationship with that energy so that we, you know, live our lives in such a way that, you know, honors it, that even sort of reveres it, adores it, but also nourishes it, tends to it, takes care of it, and allows it to continuously take care of us, to refresh us, to renew us, you know, that's what Hatha yoga, as I understand it is. And so as long as we are going, as long as we are expending all our energies, trying to sort of, you know, force our minds and bodies into a certain mold, you know, trying to, you know, purify our minds because we have a certain idea that if we're good yogis, we won't think any more aggressive or dirty thoughts anymore. And so we crack the whip on ourselves doing whatever practices we do you know, for a lifetime. But then it's like, at some point you have to look and go, what, what is this relationship that I have to my body and mind? You know, it seems very, 
like this is the same old nonsense that we were doing in middle school and high school and so forth. You know, it's like the dynamic is not fundamentally different at all. And, you know, I think the, the, the promise of yoga is the promise of an entirely different relationship, an entirely different dynamic, an entirely different way of embodying our, our vitality and, and of, you know, allowing our creative energy to express itself in the world an entirely different way of, of relating, you know, than to, to ourselves and to the people around us. So, um, yeah, eventually that whole kind of discipline approach where we're trying to like make something of ourselves and measure up, it has to be let go of, you know, and of course the ego goes, Oh, but if I let go of that, what's going to happen? What lazy, apathetic, awful kind of dreadful person will I become? But I mean, that's just part of the dynamic. I mean, it's not true at all. I mean, what will you become? You have to go find out. You have to surrender to what is in order to find out. But the, the beautiful thing is that, I mean, the body wants to move. It wants to move with vigor, with vitality. It wants to breathe. The heart wants to explore. It wants to fall in love. It wants to create new things. It wants to create a better world, you know? And, and that, that, the, all of that is sort of, you know, fundamental and sort of, you know, it's dying to be unlocked, but we keep it locked up mostly out of, you know, fear uh, and, you know, and hesitation. And it's precisely all of that, that sort of, that sort of fear-based hesitation-based, I need to make myself measure up. I need a clear external measure of where I am and how I'm doing that just kind of feeds that whole stifling um, uh, uh, perspective, yeah, that way of being. So I always use this example with children, you know, think about how, because you have kids, think about how many skills little children from toddlers up learn from crawling to, to, to walking, to jumping, to speaking, to all of those things. And nobody tells them how or corrects yeah. them or show, you know, shows them. I mean, I remember Megan never actually crawled. She rolled from whatever place she got around <laughs> just fine. And, and look at her, she's, <laughs> she can stand on her hands now. So obviously it didn't hurt her. It, it Yet we have this, like, we know that it works. We know that we are innately drawn to exploring the body and forward movement. I mean, we're not, if somebody doesn't tell us how or correct us, it's not going to stop us. But yet we change that when we send kids to school, you know, schools, institutions kind of reshape that. It becomes a completely different learning um, and that sort of becomes conditioned in us. And we forget that we learn so much just through the exploration on, on our own and, and praise and encouragement and people there to help us up when we fall. And But there was falling that was a part of it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. There was struggle. There was falling. It was messy. We bumped our heads. We got back up. We learned so much. Yeah. And I mean, I, it seems to, I mean, this is, this topic's near and dear to my heart because I have young children and, and, um, and they've, they don't go to school. They've never been to school. We, we kind of school them at home, but we don't really, sounds like a lot of work, but it, I mean, it's not, we just hang out with them and yeah, let them ask us tons and tons and tons and tons of questions. And, you know, they're brilliant. And, um, you know, because it, it seems to me that that, that, that when we put our children in school, that one thing that those institutions do, you know, consciously or unconsciously is, is, is sort of is send this message to us that, you know, we are not to be trusted. <laughs> you know, that, that, um, that unless we, you know, really subject ourselves to some rigorous discipline and you know, become in sort of encultured in some way, you know, um, that we're, we're simply, we're not going to be worthy human beings, you know, we're not going to, we're not going, we're going to, we're going to be behind the curve. We're going to be, there's something's going to be wrong with us if, if left to our own devices. I mean, I, it, it wasn't until I, I won't, I don't know what the exact moment when, but it was very late in my life, you know, in, in my like well into adulthood 
supposed adulthood that it dawned on me that I implicitly believe that, you know, and that, that so much of, of what I had spent my young adult life doing and even including, you know, the way I practiced yoga was premised on that, uh, that, um, subconscious belief, you know, and I see it in so many Ashtanga students, you know, cause so many Ashtanga students are the type A, you know, overachieving kind of, you know, people, um, yeah, who are always, you know, they crack the whip on themselves super hard, you know, and again, it's okay. I mean, if that's your personality, come on, you know, Ashtanga is a, is a good, um, a good practice for such people. Um, you know, but it, it, but if it works, it helps you eventually see through that, that you go, Oh, like you, like you uncover that belief and go, why do I think that? Is that actually true? You know? What if I trusted my own intelligence? What if I trusted my own? What if I listened to the deeper longings of my heart and followed those without fear? What kind of life would I live? You know, instead of worrying about how I'm going to measure up. I mean, yoga is supposed to help us with that, you know, and that's amazing because what else helps us with that really in our, in our culture, you know, not much. There's not much that helps us, but that's a, that's a lesson to learn very young in life. I mean, that's a lesson that I think a child already kind of understands that lesson unless and until you instill in them the belief that they're actually not worth much and lesson until they make themselves worthy. I made a conscious decision when Megan began practicing and she was, she was, you know, young and, you know, cause obviously she, she'd grown up and around me and had watched me practice and would periodically come in, try some things out. But Megan, by personality, is a pretty driven kid. She's she's an intense kid. And I thought, oh, is this a good idea? Like, is really this the yoga for her? And so I made a conscious decision not to teach her it, to just let her mimic me if she wanted. And I only really answered questions. So she would come up. So could I, so she started practicing probably early high school, maybe middle school, middle school, probably. And then she got to the point where, you know, where most people be like, you give postures, right? Like that, like somebody's supposed to give you postures. And I decided, no, I wouldn't give her anything. I would simply wait until she asked what came next. And then I would just tell her. And that was it. And she learned her way through that way on her own and it's and she's very disciplined and very dedicated and very devoted and loves her practice and doesn't have those same hang-ups about someone else giving you know it's a little experiment on my part because that wasn't at all the way I had been taught or the way I had seen it taught but it worked so beautifully. It's this little bit of unschooling in Ashtanga, I think. I think that's what we would call it, right? Just let her dictate. And it does work. It does work. Yeah, it works brilliantly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it works really, really well. Ty, we could go on and on. This has been like such an enjoyable conversation. It was so refreshing and fun and you just make me want to get on my mat and go practice. <laughs> Wonderful. That's fabulous. Thank you. My pleasure, Peg. What a joy this has been. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To find out more about Ty Landrum, his courses, and retreats, please visit tylandrum.com. While you're here, Peg and I wanted to invite you to the path for 2023 with our theme, the nature of yoga. When you become a member of the path, you'll receive a bi-monthly journal, ongoing live and pre-recorded classes, and monthly live gatherings to connect and inspire. Join us for the journey into the natural, wild, and sacred self. Go to ashtangadispatch.com and visit the programs page 
where you can also check out our year-long mentorship opportunity, which is now open for registration. The Ashanga Dispatch podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by Peg Malqueen and Megan Powell. Music by Mark Pilly. Thanks again for listening.